Hello everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a one-woman book podcast. I am a university fiction instructor looking at the less talked about, less popular Stephen King novels and giving them the classroom treatment. Happy Year of the Rabbit, everybody! I'm really excited because I'm a tiger and it's gonna be a good one for me. I hope it's gonna be a good one for all of you. Last year was Year of the Tiger. You'd think it would have been good for me, but no. As a matter of fact, that's not how it works. So, (laughs) can't complain, of course, but I will. It wasn't my favorite year. Going forward, welcome to part one of our four-part, four-past-midnight coverage, The Langoliers. Oh, it's so great to be with you guys. This was terrific fun. Lots of thoughts. Oh man, friends, I really feel like I just have a giant U-Haul truck completely packed to the hilt. Like, this moving van is absolutely jammed, and I'm just gonna back it on up into your house. (laughs) That's how the Langoliers made me feel, guys. This is, of course, a sci-fi king tale, and as some of us may know, sci-fi king is slightly complicated, right? Ergo, I feel, I don't exactly know how I feel yet about this story. There's largely more positive than there is negative, but what was terrific fun is cracking this baby open while I was on an actual aircraft. (laughs) I totally did that. It was completely coincidental. I just knew I was going to start with Four Past Midnight. I've never ever read a single novella within Four Past Midnight, so on my post-New Year's trip to the Arctic north of Minnesota, I decided let's start the Langoliers while I'm strapped in at 35,000 feet. That was wild times, my friend, let me tell you. It was great slash not fun at all, so I struggle with flying on planes. I do I do require some heavy medication slash sedation sometimes if I get a little anxious, but reading the Langoliers I thought would be helpful for me on my flight. Quite, quite opposite actually. Lots of stuff to talk about with everybody, but if you are new to the show, welcome, welcome. We hope you stay a while. How this is gonna go is our very traditional novel analyses slash novella analyses. We're going to begin, of course, this is the intro section where I'm gonna tell you the rules of the game and how it's gonna work. We are then going to transition into the strengths of the Langoliers. We're going to look at the areas that I found really well done, very compelling, good stuff, good stuff. Usually has a lot of literary analysis involved, so we're going to talk about structure, prose, character, dialogue, you know, stuff we learned in English class, but I promise I'll make it fun. Our second section is going to be our character section, and I usually break it down into the categories of heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. But today, ladies and gentlemen, we actually have a year of underrated Stephen King first. We have our very first problem child. That's really all I can categorize it as. This is, I can't wait to talk about it with you, but let's just say we have a new category and it's called Problem Child. We've never done that before. I'm excited, it's happening. It's happening today, Problem Child. That will be our character section. 
We have a lot of characters in this book. Not all of them get the appropriate spotlight, but we still gotta talk about it. So that will be quite a robust section, I feel, unless I edit it down a little bit, which I might still do. Our third section is going to take us into criticisms and questions. I will lift up the rug on this little story, we'll look at all the ugly bits, the parts that aren't working, weaker areas, we might do a little bit of wishing well where I re-envision this whole thing and throw in some ideas for completely revising slash redoing this story if I had a magic wand to do so. And lastly, we have to talk about the 1995 Langoliers miniseries. I took a gander at it. I never saw it when I was in the third grade in 1995. I don't know if I was aware enough to give it a gander, nor did I want to give up watching any cartoons for the Langoliers. But if I'm really reaching back into my memory banks, it was on ABC, I believe, and I feel I recall seeing commercials for it. I do feel that is a real thing. So we must, must, must have a wee chat about the 1995 miniseries. It was two parts, about an hour and a half each night, minus commercials, of course. And then that will round out this episode. I plan to follow this exact structure for the additional three novellas we have with Four Past Midnight because longtime listeners know I am obsessed with Stephen King novellas. Short stories and novellas definitely blow my dress up in a different sort of way. Granted, I love, love, love the novels as well, but there is something magical when King is holding back a little bit when he's not going as long when he's playing with style and brevity i can't help but explode when it comes to the novellas and short stories so i'm gonna take my time with four past midnight and my goodness everybody in the author forward of this collection i started to salivate holy crap King is basically alerting the reader that we are about to start a new decade. He has been at this for 10 years and change. He's still having fun. He's checking the oil, making sure we're all good because we're on a long road trip and he has no intention of stopping. And just in the author forward, guys, there is some beautiful writing. Oh, this prose, my goodness. I gotta share it with you. I was absolutely blown away. I am utilizing the American hardcover and she be thick ladies and gentlemen this is a thick lady she's a heavy one so let's take a look at this small chunk from the author forward here we go they are by and large a little longer than the stories in different seasons and they were written for the most part doing the two years I was supposedly retired perhaps they are different because they came from a mind which found itself turning at least temporarily to darker subjects Time, for instance, and the corrosive effects it can have on the human heart, the past, and the shadows it throws upon the present, shadows where unpleasant things sometimes grow, and even more unpleasant things hide and grow fat. Yet not all of my concerns have changed, and most of my convictions have only grown stronger. 
I still believe in the resilience of the human heart and the essential validity of love. I still believe that connections between people can be made and that the spirits which inhabit us sometimes touch. I still believe that the cost of those connections is horribly, outrageously high, and I still believe that the value received far outweighs the price which must be paid. I still believe, I suppose, in the coming of the white and in finding a place to make a stand and defending that place to the death. There are old-fashioned concerns and beliefs, but I would be a liar if I did not admit I still own them, and that they still own me. Whew, preach, Steve. Whoa. Whoa. Like, you guys and gals, holy fudge, that is tremendous and powerful, and yeah, that's what I got to wet my palate on before starting the Langoliers. So, the theme of this collection seems to be time, which I am here for it. You guys know with my favorite, favorite novella collection, the one that started it all, Full Dark No Stars, the theme of that one is revenge. So if anybody's feeling a certain kind of way at the beginning of 2023, you can head back to that one at any time and we can talk about it. But the theme of time is what is governing for past midnight and I am excited for it. I am here for it. I am down. So with this first tale, The Langoliers, it is indeed sci-fi king. I feel it's completely meant to be. I feel very serendipitous as our first episode of 2022 was another sci-fi king. It was the first novella within the Skeleton Crew short story collection, The Mist. That one is terrific fun. It's an awesome creature feature. And I feel there's a little bit of parallels with The Mist and The Langoliers. We are once more dealing with creatures, however, the mist is really over the top, completely bombastic in the best way, really, really just an explosive cinematic adventure. The Langoliers is subtle, much like From a Buick 8 was subtle. That was one of my favorite novels from 2022, and I really felt a lot of those Buick 8 little tinglies as I was making my way through the Langoliers. This collection was published in 1990. The Langoliers is 246 pages split between nine chapters. During the author forward, King is writing to us from 1989. So for you constant readers out there, we know right around 86, 87, we have some pretty ginormous King novels and also the intervention that led to King's sobriety. I have focused on some of these titles throughout the podcast. Drawing of the Three, Misery, and the Tommyknockers. Those were right around that sticky area of sobriety and family intervention. So we are, in theory, in the early days of Sober King. So I'm eager to explore this. I feel much more close to From a Buick 8 than I do to the Tommyknockers, which is a very controversial King title. Well, perhaps not controversial, but it's a hot take. People have strong opinions about that book. Some people will defend it to the death and will debate you within an inch of their lives. And others, like myself, are happily ready in hand to throw some stones. Granted, I will also say lots of positive things about the Tommyknockers, but once more, we have Sci-Fi King here, ladies and gentlemen. And in my experience of now, I believe we're in the 50 plus, maybe 50, I think. High 40s, 
low 50s in terms of king titles I have thus far digested. In my experience, sci-fi king is a little tricky. I will talk more about that later. For now, let's remind everybody what The Langoliers is all about. It might have been a couple years since you've read this or watched the miniseries, or hopefully you freshly read it. But just as a caveat emptor to everybody, buyer beware, I do my very best to avoid spoilers. However, I sometimes get into the gray area and will reveal certain things about the plot. However, I try to keep it as vague as possible. For example, I won't say exactly how someone dies. I will say they exited the novel. So yeah, I mean, if we're splitting hairs, that technically is a spoiler, but I do my best to keep it opaque. So just a heads up, guys, I do not want to spoil anything for you. Make sure you have freshly read or listened to The Langoliers so I don't ruin anything. I don't want to be that gal. All right, here is a quick summary on what The Langoliers is all about. American Pride Flight 29 from LA to Boston gets a little complicated when half an hour after takeoff, over 100 passengers disappear into thin air, while 11 sleeping passengers awaken to a terrifying new reality. Pilot Brian Angle lands in Maine, where a deserted airport and scentless, noiseless, tasteless world is all there is. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think that will get us ready to head into this episode. Once more, I am your flight attendant, Kim C., and this is American Pride Flight 29 in service to Boston. Please make sure your seat and tray tables are in their upright and log position. Fasten your seatbelt as our four-hour, 55-minute flight will begin shortly. I hope you all have a safe and pleasant flight. Let's start the show. Flight 29 passengers, please look on your left as we were passing the Aurora Borealis over Colorado. <laughs> Does everyone like flight attendant Kim C? Perhaps I missed my calling. Perhaps not. Let's just say it's not far off because my mother worked for the airlines when I was a little girl, and this is very... Let's just say I spent a lot of time up in the air, so who knows, maybe one of these days I'll scratch an itch and go in flight. This is the strength section, everyone. Let's get down to business and let's get into it. As I kind of hinted in our introduction, Sci-Fi King is a little sticky. 
The reason why he's a little sticky, this is of course my own personal hypothesis. For those of you constant readers out there, we know that King's writing style isn't traditional. Most fiction writers plot out everything. They do a lot of pre-writing, outlines, character sketches. They have the whole story mapped out before they even start typing. Mr. King is not that way. He has said ad nauseum over the years that he is a writer who discovers the story as he goes. He will see an image, a recurring theme, usually it's just a specific vision in his mind, could be a memory, and then the story sort of builds around it. Here's the complicated thing with that in regards to science fiction. When you are world building, I believe as an instructor of fiction, I see 50 to 100 drafts every single week of this exact thing. You really need to know what you want to say with this new world, what you want it to be in order for it to be real to your reader. So that's the tricky thing with Steve's sci-fi. I think all of the large problem areas I've had with Steve's writing are all of his science fiction tales. From a Buick 8, the Tommyknockers is a huge one for this, the short story The Jaunt, The Mist, and now The Langoliers. Of course, we will save all of that for our criticism section, but I do want to celebrate what we have in this complicated story with three areas of strength. So the first category that I absolutely love is setting. Oh my gosh, guys, the setting of this story is everything. It's absolutely everything. We have a three-act narrative structure where we begin on an airplane, we are temporarily at an abandoned airport in Bangor, Maine, and then we are back on the airplane. So that is our structure. The setting is the mood of this book, guys. The entrapped powerlessness, the lack of control. Thankfully, we do have a character who is a pilot, which puts a lot of us readers at ease, but when you are 35,000 feet up and everyone disappears and you are just flying into abject darkness, there are no city lights below you, that really amps up the ambiance of this story. And King has the makings of a very intriguing thriller. So I'm so excited by the setting, guys. As I mentioned, I struggle with aircrafts. I really do. I don't like anything about them. It's the lack of control is the most part. Yes, I understand it's the safest way. I believe all of that. I really do. It's so many other things. It's the fact that we as little human beings are not supposed to be that high up in the sky. Thanks to science, we are able to, but it still doesn't make it okay. We're just flying through the air in a tin can and it's definitely not natural. And when you have anxiety, you just spiral out. And I couldn't help but immensely enjoy what King was doing inside the aircraft with all of these 10 to 11, I believe it's 11. One of the characters is in and out of consciousness quite a bit, so I don't know if he counts, <laughs> but I really, really enjoyed the setting of the Langoliers, guys. The airport is completely desolate and abandoned. 
returning to the aircraft in order to make their escape is just as harrowing. And there's something so creepy and cool about a giant 767, I believe the flight is. That's a jumbo, that's a big boy. And you're just these isolated folks and the setting is so great. And I think that's one of the redeeming qualities that makes this sci-fi king tale more palatable and less problematic for me. I really overlooked a lot of the areas of head scratchy, don't know if this is working, because I just enjoyed the structure of this and the setting. Setting, of course, is absolutely essential for all gothic novels, and this one is terrific and is so strong all by itself. I found almost at the end of this story that I had such a love and appreciation for the aircraft because of everything that it had been through and that it is their only vessel of safety. It is the only thing these people have. So setting is tremendous, guys. So if you've recently finished the Langoliers, I think exploring what King did with this airplane is very cool. I also think it set the stage for a very popular television show in the early 2000s. Me and Mr. Matt H. from Tower Junkies have sparred on this show once or twice. It is a favorite of his, so I'm going to be extremely kind. Lost by J.J. Abrams was absolutely humongous. I mean, that was the most popular show, and I do have a lot of respect for that show. It was very groundbreaking groundbreaking in the way that we have a flight from Australia to LA that crashes on a deserted island and we follow in depth several characters that were on this flight for destiny question mark and we participate in several seasons trying to figure out why these characters were on that flight why they were brought to the island fascinating stuff I give lost a lot of props and I really feel we might not have a lost without a Langoliers truly guys what King has planted here with this aircraft tail and the strong characters he puts on that plane, we've got something quite magical. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful setup for a story that should be celebrated in the sci-fi King arena. More on that later. My second category is called Science with the Sci-Fi. If you guys have participated in my From a Buick Gate coverage, I 1000% thought that King was putting on his science teacher hat and making us all participate in the scientific method when reading that book. Oh my gosh, guys, there's so much science. I feel as the reader, we are just observing and collecting data and really going through the scientific method again and again and again. And I think he does that here in just a more delicate way. King really taps into the five senses when exploring this sci-fi tale. When our passengers awake, everyone on board has disappeared, minus the 11 that are still present. On the seats are metal objects, dental fillings, diamond rings, watches, pacemakers. Anything that was in the body that is not organic bone material was left on the chairs. This is sort of our first scientific clue that the reader needs to hold in their mind because what kind of phenomena would have occurred where this specific type of material would be left behind, right? So the science starts right away. It continues when the aircraft lands at Bangor Airport and our characters speak about how the air has no scent. 
and I love that King explores scent in this particular tale. Scent is one of the most underutilized elements in fiction, so if you are a writer, make sure you are using smell as often as you can. Scents, odors, do it all. It's a huge, huge, underrated, underexplored sense within writing. Outside the airplane, the air is very sterile. The clicking of Laurel Stevenson's heels on the tarmac is almost non-existent. Sound is muted. Food has very little taste and it's for the most part spoiled. Carbonated beverages have no carbonation. Like, oh my gosh guys, the science and the five senses is off the chain. We have so much of it and so there's a lot of visuals that King is bringing to the reader and we're just holding in our imagination. These characters are telling us this doesn't taste like anything. The fuel is not burning. This has no sound. And so he's really coloring this world in a very vivid way for the reader. And I love that. I find that so endearing because if you're going to do sci-fi, if you're going to put us in a new world, if you're going to really explore the Twilight Zone aspect of this story, which he does very, very well, give us those things that relate to the human five senses. What is the texture of this? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it look like? It's really Science 101. I really enjoyed this. I loved it in From a Buick Gate, and I love it here. I think it's sort of giving us baby spoonfuls of this sci-fi world, and I appreciate that. I think in other sci-fi tales, it's a little bit force-fed to us, but anytime we get a little exposition on what the characters are, experiencing is great and it's super vintage right guys i mean this whole thing is very very twilight zone it's very basic we are experiencing this reality from these characters and they're very very vocal about this smells like this this has no sound this has no taste this is strange this is weird as the reader, you just have your mental notebook jotting it down, because I think for a while, at least until the characters start theorizing what may have happened, we really don't know what's going on. We don't know why there's no city lights and no movement, no cars, no people. We have zero idea. We have no idea why the air has no scent. We can't smell oil, we can't smell jet fuel, we can't smell anything. Why Laurel's clicking of her heels is muted. So this is a wonderful technique in building the mystery and allowing the reader to really resonate with that. What's going on? Where are we? I need to figure this out. And the five senses are the clues that we have to do that. I just felt it was done so well. I loved it to death once more in From a Buicate and I love it here. It's simplistic, but it works. I really love all of the concrete details, the attention to detail that King gives to these little elements in order for the reader to put together that this world is not right. It's not right, everybody. And lastly, what I super love about the Langoliers, we have so much dialogue, guys. This is one of the chattiest King novellas I think I've ever read. We have, of course, 11 characters, 10 for the most part, about six to seven of them 
have the appropriate spotlight where King gives them a lot of development. And then there's a couple filler background folks. But this whole thing is just revealed through dialogue. The whole thing. It's all character through dialogue. And the action moves very quickly because of that. This is a fast-moving piece, minus surprising moments where King absolutely blew me away with some stunning, beyond stunning prose. Like, was not expecting how beautiful and how powerful this was. So we have dialogue everywhere, 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 and then all of a sudden, King will just drop this beauty right on our laps. And I'm gonna share some of that beauty with you right now. If you would, head to page 60 in the American hardcover. We are exploring the character of Craig Toomey. He is our villain. We're going to talk extensively about him in our next section. But I want you to read how King introduces Craig's character, the depths of him, to the reader. It's just absolutely genius. This is one of my favorite prose areas of the story. Deep in the trenches carved into the floors of the Pacific and the Indian Oceans, there are fish which live and die without ever seeing or sensing the sun. These fabulous creatures cruise the depths like ghostly balloons lit from within by their own radiance. Although they look delicate, they are actually marvels of biological design, built to withstand pressures that would squash a man as flat as a window pane in the blink of an eye. Their great strength, however, is also their great weakness. Prisoners of their own alien bodies, they are locked forever in their dark depths. If they are captured and drawn toward the surface, toward the sun, they simply explode. It is not external pressure that destroys them, but its absence. Craig Toomey has been raised in his own dark trench, had lived in his own atmosphere of high pressure. His father had been an executive in the Bank of America, away from home for long stretches of time, a caricature type A overachiever. He drove his only child as furiously and as unforgivingly as he drove himself. The bedtime stories he told Craig in Craig's early years terrified the boy. Nor was this surprising because terror was exactly the emotion Roger Toomey meant to awaken in the boy's breast. These tales concerned themselves for the most part with a race of monstrous beings called the Langoliers. Their job, their mission in life, in the world of Roger Toomey, everything had a job, everything had serious work to do, was to prey on lazy, time-wasting children. By the time he was seven, Craig, a dedicated type A overachiever, just like Daddy, had made up his mind. The Langoliers were never going to get him. A report card which did not contain all A's was an unacceptable report card, and A- was the subject of a lecture fraught with dire warnings of what life would be like digging ditches or emptying garbage cans, and a B resulted in punishment, most commonly confinement to his room for a week. During that week, Craig was allowed out for school and for meals. There was no time off for good behavior. On the other hand, extraordinary achievement, the time Craig won the tri-school decathlon, for instance, warranted no corresponding praise. When Craig showed his father the medal which had been awarded him on that occasion, in an assembly before the entire student body, his father glanced at it, grunted once, and went back to his newspaper. Craig was nine years old when his father died of a heart attack. He was actually sort of relieved that the Bank of America's answer to General Patton was gone. Wow, guys. 
Wow. Ugh, the fact that he compares Craig with a deep sea trench creature. It's just, it's so rich. I really, really love that part. And some of the characters really get some awesome prose and development in this story. And it's really great to read. There's just a lot of rich writing going on in here, guys. And I like the juxtaposition of dialogue, 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 plot, plot, scene, scene, scene. So much action going on, trying to land the plane and then figuring out they're not safe and getting back on the plane and trying to get out of this. And then we have these moments of rich, rich prose, of really deep character development. And that should really be appreciated within the Langoliers. I really, really liked it. I think it's powerful. So to recap my favorite aspects of the Langoliers setting, oh, dear ones, setting is so strong. It is tremendous. It's the reason why I really will put the Langoliers at the top of the sci-fi king pile, I think. Next we have science with the sci-fi, in particular exploring the five senses over and over and over again, lots of attention to detail, lots of concrete details explored, really allowing the reader to become a scientist, which I love. And lastly, dialogue and prose. It's everywhere, it is rich, it is good. Alright passengers, I do believe the captain is turning off the seatbelt sign. Feel free to walk up and down the cabin at your leisure, and I'll see you in the next section. Ladies and gentlemen, we are halfway through our flight. Welcome to the character section of the Langoliers. We have a really long roster today, folks. We've got a lot of people to talk about. King really gave this story a robust cast. Some are background fodder and some really, really get my attention. So we're going to kick it off with our heroes, beginning with Pilot Brian Angle. Thank goodness we have him. He is hero in all caps. Whew, without Brian, we would not have made it to Bangor. We would not. So Brian is, I believe, according to the text, early to mid 40s. He, right before flight 29, learned his wife, ex-wife, pardon me, passed away tragically. And that's kind of his backstory for the most part. I don't think we have any additional deeper stuff regarding Brian. He's just the guy that's busy saving everyone, getting them to the airport, getting them back onto the plane when they need to escape the Bangor airport. Brian's a busy guy, but thank goodness we have him. He's incredibly essential super big hero. Next, we have the absolute scene stealer and the one who I feel is our main guy. He's our main protagonist with a complicated history and that is English citizen Nick Hopewell. Nick is an attaché to the British Embassy, and 
What we also find out a little bit later on in the story is that he is an actual assassin. And what's very interesting about Nick's character and why I had maybe a little bit of trickiness is that Nick is so charming, guys. He has all the wonderful English one-liners. He is so cheeky. He's the definition of cheeky. And he's just in every single scene, in every single moment. He is jumping in there. He is diving in headfirst, absolutely being the type A who's helping Brian, but also just plugging leaks everywhere he can. What's interesting about this is because he's so charming and enjoyable, really funny, Laurel has a huge crush on him, more on that later, Nick is an assassin. We know this toward the end. And so I am really fresh from reading the novel Billy Summers, which came out in 2021, about an assassin. Oh, still swooning for that book. But the character of Billy as an assassin is incredibly private, right? Like pretty much next to no one knows his true identity. So either Nick Hopewell is extremely talented at creating the most believable, personable cover ever, or maybe King just uh, you know, the assassin part was tacked on without really thinking about it. Because Nick is such a joyful person. Such an enjoyable character, guys. And uh, he acts as if he doesn't have a lot weighing him down. Toward the end of the story, we get a couple details that he's murdered some people that, yikes, probably didn't deserve to be murdered, but for queen and country, there you go. So you'd think one of the things I love about Billy Summers is toward the end, I don't think I explored this in my episode, I really should have, but one thing I love about Billy Summers is at the end, King tells the reader, killing people is not cool. And I'm so glad he did that because I see many fiction drafts from my students a lot of the males, just saying, who write about assassins with such reverence. They love it. They love it. I get it. There's a lot to love about that powerful lifestyle, especially if you're doing it for, quote, good reasons. But what I love about the end of Billy Summers is King sort of says, killing people takes parts of the soul. It's supposed to. We're not supposed to do it. So if you glamorize it, just understand it's not glamorous. It's not going to improve your life. It's going to take from it. You have made it so someone will never breathe again. And yes, some people deserve it. They absolutely do. However, the cost is still heavy because you're the person that took that away from them. And for whatever laws of nature they may be, there's a cost. There's a cost to taking life. And it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. And I love that King explores that. So although I absolutely enjoy Nick Hopewell, I don't know if I'm really believing him to be a true assassin because <laughs> he is such a joyful character. He is in everything, helping everybody, having a quippy little cheeky remark here, just knows all the answers springing into action. I get that he's a soldier. Yeah, that works, but I don't know. Granted, I still like him. I just don't know if the assassin part is working for me. Just saying. <laughs> so Nick Hopewell, he's the everywhere guy. He steals every scene. He is English and fun and funny and definitely a huge hero for everybody at the end. Nick Hopewell, he's somebody I want to talk about with you guys. So have to chat more about Mr. Hopewell. 
Our third hero is recent high school grad, I believe so, Albert Cosner. He is a young man with a bright future ahead of him, taking his violin to the Berklee School of Music, extremely talented. He is of a Jewish background, and King explores that to great length, and also gives Albert an incredibly rich fantasy life where he envisions himself as a gunslinger. Ah, it's so great, guys. Anytime Albert is in a dreamy state, he is always a cowboy saving the day from bandits and outlaws with his six-shooter. It's so cool. Perhaps a little nod to Roland. Don't know, but I'm just inserting that because I want it to be, so... Albert Cosner is delightful. I really, really like him. He is young, but he sticks up for people, does the right thing, tries his best. He's just an enjoyable presence. Our fourth hero, super huge character, in all caps, oh my goodness, this gal really saves the day, young teenager Dinah Bellman. Dinah is really at the heart of this story because sort of King has made her our psychic child. According to the text, I believe she's approximately 11 years old. I don't have that in black and white, but if you guys have a page number showing her exact age, please let me know. But she is blind and heading to Boston for an eye operation that will hopefully grant a little bit of her sight back. Her parents don't seem to be in the picture. She is traveling with her aunt. And Dinah is a little underdeveloped for my taste because I feel King wanted to make her a very powerful psychic child, but it's dealt with a very gentle hand. Basically, Dinah's abilities toward the end of the story revolve around seeing through the eyes of others. So she is able to sort of, not necessarily astral project, but she can all of a sudden see out the eyes of a certain character, and this happens once or twice. She also has clairvoyant knowledge of the future. We don't really understand how, but it's really interesting. I think what I really like about Dinah's character, the more I think about her and the more I think about the text, I have a feeling she was just a normal girl, and perhaps the plane and our passengers going through the wrinkle in time, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, going through the quote Aurora Borealis, which just happens to be a rip in our reality. When they head into that, all of a sudden, Dinah starts to have these moments where her abilities are in full force, but it seems like she didn't have those previously, if I read the text correctly, which I may have missed that, but I like that. It also could read as though it's a little underbaked on King's part, whereas maybe he wanted to give her psychic powers, but just kind of got caught up in all the action, and she's a little underbaked, that Dinah. But she's absolutely crucial and important. I love that she is a blind character who, again, once more, we're utilizing the five senses. Dinah is on a whole nother plane of senses being enhanced because she can't see. But she is a total sweetheart. I really wish she would have stayed in the novel the whole time. 
that's all I'll say. But she is a character who I feel could be a contender for a really cool psychic king child. When we look at that archetype, we've got some amazing ones, right? We got little Danny, we've got Charlie, we've got such a vast array over the years. All the kids from the Institute, super duper special. But I, yeah, little Dinah, she's special. And I think that she really helped everybody get out of there alive. That's for darn sure. Huge hero to our young psychic child, Dinah Bellman. Let's dive headfirst into our villain category with the guy, the villain, Mr. Craig Toomey. As you heard from our previous section, the bit of prose I read, Craig had trauma with a big T in his youth, which really created a monster. He is an investment banker who, before Flight 29, has lost millions upon millions of dollars in bad bonds. He is a nut job and an absolute petulant child, throwing a fit, making life miserable for everyone on the flight. He is just a giant baby, and he copes with the stress and with things he can't control by ripping long strips of paper. It's a character detail I really enjoy about Craig. King, of course, gives Craig so much spotlight time, guys. Sometimes King really just gives those villains all the time they need to bloom, whereas others don't get as much. He gives Craig a lot, and I'm okay with it. He's a good villain, he's layered, he's complex. You realize he's not completely irredeemable based on what we know about him. Craig is our villain. He's the only villain. He's the only villain that we have, minus the sci-fi setting we could say is against our character roster. But Craig, to me, very interesting, sad, yet compelling as a bad guy. We do have one honorable mention character, guys. I had to bring this gal up because she delights me. Young lady Bethany Sims, who is, I believe, in her late teens, early 20s. She is heading to Boston to go to rehab. And she, (laughs) I love this gal because I feel Bethany is everything that I would be if I was in this situation. I, as sad as it is to think, I believe that if I was in a crisis situation and I knew all of my loved ones were dead, I would crack and I would absolutely be of no help to anyone. There would be no more teamwork for me. I would hope that, I mean, if children or animals were involved, of course, of course. But what I love about Bethany's character is she just loses it. She's hysterical. She is crying and just on the floor sobbing and kind of she's the why me like why is this happening how is this like that's what i would do guys i would absolutely lose it and she is funny she really can't keep it together but she has some great moments she has a little romance with albert it's precious but i really enjoy bethany's character she made me laugh because i'm just like yeah i would be exactly that i would lose it one of my favorite scenes is uh when craig has basically gone rogue and starts to do terrible things to a few people from Flight 29, and Bethany just absolutely erupts on how horrible everything is, and everything is awful, and now we have a psycho, and why is the sky alive, and oh my god, he's the worst, reality is the worst, everything is do- that's what I would be, unfortunately. 
If my loved ones were alive and I was working to get back to them, I would keep it cool. I would absolutely hold it together. But if they were gone and I knew 1000% they were gone, I'm going to be the worst. I'm absolutely going to be of no help to anybody. <laughs> so Bethany's character delighted me in that regard. I really enjoyed her. All right, folks, this is our year of underrated Stephen King first, our very first problem child character. And what I mean by that, everyone, is I have a character from the Langoliers, and I've never felt so conflicted about a character before in King's world. There have either been characters I just don't care about, ergo I don't mention them in the character section, or I will always categorize them as a hero, a villain, or an honorable mention. This one is so polarizing, I just can't, and I'm just so upset by this character. She's just problematic for me. I don't know what to do with this gal. And that is Laurel Stevenson. <sighs> okay, folks, so Laurel Stevenson is a librarian, I believe. She graduated with a master's in library science. She's mid to late 30s. A lovely woman, according to the text, as in she's decent enough, King says, so she should have no trouble catching a romantic partner. But yet she has been in a pen pal ring in a magazine called Friends and Lovers. My goodness, I mean, we have online dating now, we've got the apps, but back in the day, you placed personals in either the newspaper, but it sounds like this is a publication called Friends and Lovers. She's a member. She is smitten for this guy who lives in Boston, and he sent her a photo and a couple of letters, and she's ready to have carnal knowledge with this guy. Here's the thing, though. Like, that's what we learn about Laurel from the very beginning, is that she's just romance-focused. Soon after all the action of the story begins, Laurel's interest shift to Nick. Nick's very handsome, he is capable, masculine, he's really ticking a lot of boxes for her, and all of a sudden, all she wants is Nick. She does have some redeeming moments by helping Dinah. She is kind of a mother-like figure to her, takes care of her, helps her out, comforts her, so that's good. That part's redeeming. But when it comes to the depths of these characters, King gives her nothing but having the hots for Nick. Like, that's it. That's all this character is. Wanting to go sleep with the guy in Boston, and then now she's in this crisis on the plane. She's like, just kidding. I kind of want to sleep with this guy, Nick. And that's all King gives her. And I would be okay with that if there was a purpose for needing to be connected to Nick. For example, if we're going to really let this sci-fi snowball roll down the hill, Maybe she's pulled to Nick because they have to procreate because their baby has something to do with saving the world in another universe or time. I could get on board with that. That sounds amazing. Because that's what it seems like. It seems like she is so pulled to being with Nick, like there's an absolute interstellar reason why these people are brought together. Like, oh man, they gotta be together because she senses it. It's all she can think about. But yet, as the story concludes, that is not allowed to play out. Ergo, it really seems useless. It absolutely seems completely useless, and it really didn't give me anything to celebrate Laurel as a character. I just saw her as a lovesick teenage girl. There's nothing wrong with a lovesick teenage girl. However, how does that... Why is that in this story? Like, why? Why? I mean, I'll talk about this more in our next section, but a lot of the 
subtleties that our characters experience as sort of regret or awareness in the third act of the novella and oh god laurel guys like it's, it's dumb it's just dumb and she's not as robust and layered and complex as she could have been we don't get anything about her childhood was she married before what was her longest relationship why is she writing in like wh- <sighs> why why such a romantic focus on nick hopewell like what is the purpose what in the hell is the purpose at the end they do kind of share a mutual romantic interest in each other which great cool that paid off but not really because nick does exit the novel so it's like what in the hell what in the hell steve i I don't understand what's going on with that i am cautious to say that I may have just been emotionally compromised by Laurel, where she was making me upset, so maybe I wasn't looking as deeply as I should have. Ergo, ladies and gentlemen, if I miss something in regards to Laurel Stevenson, please let me know. And let me know if I miss something big, because right now, Laurel is a problem child. I've never had one before in the King universe thus far. It's very interesting. I don't know what to do with her. I give her credit where credit is due. I appreciate how she helped Dinah, but everything else is just like garbage and useless. And what am I, and what, what for? Why? Don't know. So let's recap our heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. Once more, for the Langoliers, we have pilot Brian Angle, English assassin Nick Hopewell, Berkeley music student Albert Cosner, blind slash psychic preteen Dinah Bellman, villain investment banker, and the creator, sort of, of the Langoliers, Craig Toomey. Honorable mention, <laughs> the wild card of Bethany Sims, teenager on her way to rehab, but speaking her mind at every moment, I'm a fan, and my problem child, librarian turned lovesick puppy for no damn reason, Laurel Stevenson. All right, folks, I think we're descending a little bit. Let's go ahead and buckle up your seatbelts and head into our questions and criticism section. I'll see you there. Passengers, while my fellow flight attendants are readying the cabin for landing, let's examine what's a bit off-kilter and a little wonky within the Langoliers novella. Firstly, let me remind everyone of my thoughts regarding science fiction Stephen King. Based on the titles we've explored on the podcast thus far, The Mist, From a Buick 8, the Tommyknockers, I know I'm missing one, but concerning those in particular, all of which I've had issues with, but I like all of them in various ways for various reasons. But as I have kind of said a few times before, I feel what all of the titles that are sci-fi king 
What they all have in common is the lack of pre-planning, the lack of outline, the lack of connection to the otherness of this other world. Because as most of us know, Stephen King is not a planner when he writes. He's a discoverer. And this is very unusual, guys. This is very rare in fiction. Usually, fiction writers will map out an entire novel. They will have plot arcs. They will know the ending. They have it all worked out. Steve is not like that. He just writes and goes with the flow and bobs with the waves and sees what pops up. And now that the Langoliers has been added to my science fiction Stephen King roster, I'm pretty confident in saying that the sci-fi king tales, according to moi, have more problems because there is, for the most part, a lack of lore, a lack of world building, and a lack of connecting the wonderful king characters we have, we always have them because he's such a brilliant character writer, it just sometimes, the cohesion to connect the characters to the intricate plot going on in the background, Guys, we just got multiple issues in multiple areas concerning Sci-Fi King. The Sci-Fi King titles, of course, are still terrific and worth reading and exploring and dissecting, but I find I have more of a critical eye with Sci-Fi King than with any other genre he's exploring. I, I really do. I just, I think I'm a little harder on him in the sci-fi realm than anywhere else. Secondly, let's distill a little bit of what we have in this story to kind of get on the same page of where I'm finding problems. So to round out what we've been exploring thus far in the Langoliers, we have a three-act structure of plane, airport, plane. It works so well. I really like it. We've got 11 survivors of the non-disappeared And they figure out somehow that they have gone through a rip in space and time and ended up in a kind of purgatorial waiting zone they were never supposed to be in. Humans do not belong in this place. The Bangor Airport is a deadened space where sights, smells, tastes, atmosphere, physics, All the human things on Earth in the 20th century aren't operating normally in this place. And we discover that the story deepens because not only is this dead realm all they have, but there are creature-like entities that are going to destroy this random construction zone reality because humans don't belong there. We're not supposed to be here. It's not our world. It's just this raw data space. Who knows what they were using it for? Who knows who it belonged to previously? The theories are endless. The mysteries are endless. But these creatures are worm-like, according to the text, at least my interpretation and my somewhat shoddy memory gave me. I could have just interpolated what I wanted them to be like. Perhaps I was thinking of Frank Herbert's Dune, because I'm a fan, and I really, really like the Shy Elude, who are the sandworms, the ginormous worms burrowing in and out of the sand on the Dune planet of Arrakis. But bottom line, we've got some creatures that they have to escape before they're eaten and destroyed. 
Then we head into the third act of the novella where they only have the plane as a way of escape. So they get back on and they try and find somewhere out there that's habitable where they can land. And then serendipitously, they realize they're able to go back through the time rip with moments to spare and dwindling fuel and it's all really suspenseful. And then they get back home with no fuss, no muss. That was close. Phew, that was a close one. And everyone, dear friends, there's a happy ending where they all literally walk into the sunshine with no problems. Everything is back the way it was. Everything's got a bow wrapped up, heading to the bar for cocktails, first rounds on Brian, and it's like, excuse me, what? Uh, the happy ending. And so now that I've spent some time with this novella, it seems to me this is just my thoughts on the story. I have a feeling that King may have been going for a narrative Twilight Zone episode, or for my younger folk out there, a really elaborate Black Mirror episode where it just starts off as a normal American flight, and then into the time-space mess we go, and watch out there are monsters, and what are we gonna do? Ah, back on the plane, and that was close. Home safe, home safe. But in my experience, dear ones, I don't know if Twilight Zone slash Black Mirror episodes, do they end with all is normal, all is well? Is that what goes down in the final moments? Because that is the area I first want to unpack and change with all of you guys in this criticism section. So my first bone to pick with Mr. King concerning the Langoliers is the happy ending. Dear listeners, personally, I wanted a bit more of a punch with this ending. I do understand that our characters have been through a lot. I get it, but I feel with such a huge premise as this one, having it end with zero consequences or zero last minute dread, Oh man, it just kind of felt like a missed opportunity, guys. Like, the brilliance and possibility of going through a rip in time. As we Dark Tower folks know, like, going through these other worlds, it's it's magic. And there's so, my god, there's just so many things that he could have done here. I'm not saying it has to be a sad ending or an unhappy one. If you guys recall the really epic War of the Worlds novel by H.G. Wells that was later performed in a really epic audio drama by Orson Wells, and it has an ending that's somewhat simplistic and sort of sunny. But after the Langoliers, after everything these folks have gone through, quite literal time and space and other worlds, and the fact that over a hundred people on their flight vanished into thin air, or most likely they were vaporized or abducted, we have no idea. We are clueless as the reader. And then our remaining folks literally just walk into the sunshine, no harm, no foul. And so I'm left scratching my head a little bit because I have to ask myself, did King just want us to forget about those missing people on the plane? Are we supposed to forget about the dead people that we lost in this adventure and just head to the bar and shrug our shoulders and say, oh, wow, that was, that was a ride. And so it seems that way, dear friends, and I think it's not sitting very well with me. So the ending needs 
some work. We either need a punchy Stephen King paragraph that illuminates everyone's death or that they were dead the whole time or something wild like that or some sort of egg-like face hugger was planted into their ear. I don't know. We need something more than the sunny ending, dear ones. It's just problematic. I really was hungry for a final sci-fi punch. What are the consequences for going through the rip in time? I mean, I understand everybody on the plane disappeared, only the metal was left behind. They're most likely gone forever, but the consequences of that, I mean, people disappeared into thin air and life is never going to be normal again now that this time rip is open. And like, ugh. So the ending, of course, leads me into my second category, which is length. My criticism here is stemming off of the happy ending because this is a pretty robust novella, guys. This is a meaty one. A lot goes down, there's tons of dialogue, tons of characters, a lot of action, right? A lot of emphasis is put on landing the plane, on getting back into the plane, on escaping the creatures, a lot of action and movement. When Craig goes crazy in the Bangor airport, it's about surviving that, and there's a lot of action and moving pieces going on in here. And yet at the end, I'm still not satisfied. So my thoughts are either King needs to edit down this novella significantly, or we need to keep going and make it a novel. We need another 200 pages to flush this thing out and maybe have parts one and two of this novel. Part one, of course, is plane, Bangor Airport, back on the plane through the time rip, and then book two is once they're back home. The investigation of these people who disappeared, the fact that maybe the reality they went to wasn't hunky-dory 20th century LA and everything's fine. Maybe it was indeed another reality that isn't quite their own or it isn't quite the one that they remembered. Maybe something, again, they have some sort of mutating powers or abilities that they didn't have originally, vivid nightmares, dreams. Maybe the shop gets involved and we've got a syringe full of lot six or something. I don't know, guys. It's I, I'm having problems with where the current length is based on the ending. We either need much more from King or we need a very strict editing session. My third and last criticism, of course, is too many characters. If we do plan on editing down the Langoliers, let's start by chopping characters. Chop them right off. Because there are some that don't really do anything for me. There's one of them. He was so uneventful for me that I, I think I just forgot to write his name down, which is not really like me. Clearly I was annoyed, but he's just this drunk guy who's passed out on the plane the whole time and all he wants is some dinner and he just keeps saying that. And it's funny, it's cute, it's whatever, but we just don't need it. I think King gives a lot of spotlight to a select few characters and then he takes that spotlight from others who need it a little bit more. Like my problem child, Laurel Stevenson. I needed more of Laurel and maybe a little bit less from Craig. I wanted more Dinah. I wanted more Bethany. 
These would have been delightful to keep, but we could chop Bob, the author, even though he does contribute to the group understanding what's going on, he puts together this theory of the time rip and this alternate reality. Ultimately, yes, Bob is important, but hey, if we're being drastic, he could be chopped. Don Gaffney's another one, filler, background. Let's trim the fat. Let's cut out some of these characters, make it a really special group of like six to seven, eight at the max, including Craig Toomey, who does not last, and then the remaining seven find their way back. It could have been really good, guys. And we could trim the fat by chopping off the erroneous characters, really, really zooming in on the characters that we have, giving them lots of spotlight, and maybe broadening out this story a little bit, kind of like the way Lost did in the early 2000s. I don't like bringing up that show because I hated the way it ended so much to the point that it really leaves a bad taste in my mouth when I think about Lost. However, there are so many things I like about it. One, the character development is amazing. The premise is terrific. We have a doomed flight from Australia to LA, and all of these characters end up on this island having crashed there. And over the course of the entire first season, we learn about, oh gosh, it must have been a dozen or more characters, why they were on that flight, what were their lives like before getting on that flight, and what is it about their unique life experiences that contribute to this island existence in a positive way. So in a way, they were kind of meant to be, like it was all destiny, it's all fate that all of them were meant to be on this island huge questions. It's one of the reasons why Lost has such a huge fan base. It's a great show in that regard, but King really had an opportunity to dive deep, give us an idea of why those people were on the plane. Why them? Is there a significance? There could be. King could have definitely kicked this ball down the hill and really had it gain weight, really given us a novel that would be unforgettable on how these particular people were put on this plane that went through this thing and then they came home forever altered, whether that be good or whether that be bad. And maybe they would have had a Mother Abigail effect where they all dream of Dinah or something. I don't know. So much, guys. I I really want to redo this based on the ending, based on the superfluous characters, and based on the length. I think we could revise this in a really wonderful way. So my wishing well segment, if I was able to be in the editing room, what I would definitely recommend to Steve, and this is wild guys, I don't even know if this would work, with the amount of dialogue we have in this story and the amount of concrete detail and science and the five senses, I would have told King to turn this thing into a script and make an audio drama. I know in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s in fact, that probably would have been a very hard sell, but little would he know he would be decades ahead of the game now that all of us are plugged into audio dramas. This would have been tremendous, guys. It would have been along the lines of War of the Worlds. We could have had fantastic actors portraying these characters, and there's just so much dialogue. It would have worked. It would have moved the plot so well. He could have kept the amount of characters because we would have had differentiating voices to keep everybody clear. It would have been great. 
great. And I think it still could be done, guys. My 21st century wishing well request would be to revise this thing in a multi-episode audio drama. I think that would be beautiful. We could also turn it into a minimum eight-episode miniseries and really slow down the action, spend a little bit more time in Bangor, Maine, spend more time with these characters, learn about their lives, because King hints at that. When we're toward the latter half of the novel, our characters do seem to be a bit remorseful over the past they've chosen. This was a little undercooked, but I could feel it happening. I could feel it with the character of Nick Hopewell. You could get a little sense of that with Craig Toomey. Everyone started to reflect a little bit and he was opening the can and then he quickly shut it and then the novella ends and I'm just like, no, Steve, we really could have had something amazing with these characters that you brought to this world. So yes, the 21st century revision and audio drama would be incredible. My friend Bryant Burnett pointed out that The Mist was actually turned into an audio drama, which what an amazing experience that must be. need to find a way to get my hands on it, but this would be perfect for it. We have a huge cast, lots of differentiating characters, with elaborate backstories that King could augment, so it would be really, really rich and dynamic, and we have this wonderful premise of this jetliner accidentally going through a hole in time, and like, what opened it? Who opened it? How did this happen? Oh, the, the magic, the possibility. It's incredible. We could really do some magic with it now, guys. I either want a minimum eight-episode miniseries where we could zoom in on everybody, spend a ton of time in that aircraft, at the airport, back on the aircraft, and then give us a punchy ending that explains how the world might not be the same one that they left. Oh, it, it would be amazing. And maybe they want to find Brian. Maybe it's a couple months and things have been weird and terrible for all of them and they get back together and they're like, we got to go back through the rip because this world is not ours. Oh man, guys, I already have season two cooked up. Like, let's do it. Let's absolutely do this. We need a 21st century Langoliers reboot. We really do. To recap my criticisms, let's take a look at the happy ending. Thumbs down on that. We need to do something with the length and we've got to chop some characters if we're gonna edit. Let us now have a quick tete-a-tete about the 1995 ABC miniseries, The Langoliers. I was unable to find it on any streaming services, but thank you, YouTube. I was able to watch it in its entirety, and it's pretty good, guys. I was pleased with the performances and the casting. I felt it worked really well. The only part that's really cringy is, of course, the very end where we get a visual... <laughs> we get visuals of the creatures slash the Langoliers. The Langoliers is a term coined by the horribly abusive father of Craig Toomey, who concocted this tale to scare his son. So these creatures really have nothing to do with Craig's past. They just happen to be called the Langoliers. It's just a kind of thread that happens. But said Langoliers, my friends, oh my god. Okay, how do I... Let's just say they look like a giant flying meatball with chainsaw teeth flying through the sky at rapid speed 
eating the world like Pac-Man. And that's how we conclude in the dramatic climax of a miniseries. I, oh god, it was, it was cringy. It still is. It's very, very unfortunate. And it makes me sad because I cannot imagine how much that must have cost in 1995. And, oh, sad, sad, sad. And I really wish they just would have went old school and, like, did some movie making that was a little more organic, you know, like shadows and wood and quick camera cuts, something, or just the noise of them crunching and gnashing through the trees. The sound of them alone would have been cool. Or just seeing somebody get like eaten or ripped apart, but we don't necessarily see the creature. Man, old school suspense, old school Hitchcock techniques. We should have went that route in order for it to age gracefully. That is why Storm of the Century is 10 times better and came out only four years later. But I digress. The Langoliers, the performances are good, and I was actually pleased at how close it stayed to the text. We're actually very, very close to it. We don't deviate a lot. The only deviation I saw that I actually was okay with is I could see the director wanting to make Dinah's character a little more psychic because she's a little hot and cold and underdeveloped until the third act. Dinah is kind of just a normal blind preteen until about halfway into the flight and then we kind of get an idea that she might have some abilities. So the director ramps that up a little bit so the audience is aware that Dinah is special right away which I'm actually okay with. I think it works. Creative decisions had to be made to make these roles defined, and Dinah as our sorta kinda psychic child, it worked. It worked, so I was actually okay with that. But there are no huge deviations from the story. Everything's really close. I respect that. I actually really am okay with that. So you could tell that they spent a lot of time on the plane portions, such as the frightening landings and takeoffs, which those are actually very scary because I don't do well with planes, but I was okay with it. I think there's just a lot of talking. There really is nonstop dialogue, which is okay, but there's really not a lot of time where, other than Craig Toomey, where we get a silent moment with one or two characters. It's fast moving, it's close to the novella, which is okay. I am pleased, I am, yes. <laughs> I have to sort of, this has been such a wild ride of analysis, folks, that I'm like, I don't know how I feel. Like, I, I, I'm i stuck, I'm, there's a lot going on in Langoliers. As I said, that moving van is full. I think I'm still a little bit jammed in my mind of how it's all working, but I was pleased with the miniseries. It's a little cringy, it hasn't aged that well, and the miniseries falters because the story is flawed. But other than that, everyone did great, so no complaints there. I recommend checking out The Langoliers on YouTube, or if you're able to stream it, awesome, or if you have a really, really old DVD that works as well. It's worth it, and this would be a terrific exercise for my class on how to edit, how to make it better. What could we do to enhance that ending? How could we chop a character that isn't contributing? How could we maybe extend the premise? This is a good one. I actually might pick this apart for class. 
overall, I guess with all this analysis, that leads me to say that I am in favor and that I like the Langoliers, which I do. Do I have problems with it? Yes, I do. But I did enjoy it. I really love the premise. I really love the setting. All those things I mentioned in our first section. But overall, I am excited to keep going with Four Past Midnight, everyone. And let me tell you, I am almost done with Secret Window, Secret Garden. Oh my goodness, guys, it's happening. I am really liking it and I'm a little creeped out. That's all I'll say. I am excited to chat about that one with you. And hopefully I'll be able to get this to you in a more timely manner. Forgive the delay. The school year in January is always like a freight train of crazy. So I hope to have it to you very, very soon. So please keep it here on the Year of Underrated Stephen King for the second novella within four past midnight. I love it. Love that we are in novella town kicking off 2023. That's all I have for you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you had fun. I hope you're inspired to check out the Langoliers, to re-listen to it, reread it, thumb through some passages. As always, if I missed something huge in the text and screwed something up, you are more than welcome and encouraged to write to me at underratedsk at gmail.com. I am always, always, always grading papers and I will respond to you promptly. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show on any past episode you want to chat about. You can also reach me on the socials of Twitter and Instagram. I check those often as well, but hopefully there aren't a lot of long lines at baggage claim and that you have a wonderful time at your destination. Thank you for choosing American Pride and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.